0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Author Talks. I'm Librarian Maria Racina of the Quotes Loop Library. I'd like to start by thanking Rebecca Silver of HarperCollins and Andreas at Paragraph Books for partnering with us on this event. I'd also like to thank my colleague, Danielle Belanger, who is here with us making sure everything is working in the background. If you have tech issues, that is who you speak to. Our guest today is Montreal author Heather O'Neill, novelist, poet, short story writer, screenwriter, and journalist. Her debut novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals, which I have right here, um, published in 2006, won Canada Reads in 2007, the Hugh MacLennan Prize for Fiction, and was shortlisted for eight other major awards. Heather was also named by Chatelaine as one of the most influential women in Canada, which is a big deal. Some of her other works have been The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, published in 2014, Daydreams of Angels, a collection of short stories in 2015, The Lonely Hearts Hotel in 2017, and today we are discussing her latest novel, published this year, When We Lost Our Heads. So a welcome to Heather, but I wanna start by reading a short synopsis. Um, A spellbinding story about two young women whose friendship is so intense, it not only threatens to destroy them, it changes the course of history. It's a nice big novel, and it's hard to summarize. So I found all of the summaries to not get to the crux of the matter, but I will read one. Marie Antoine is the charismatic, spoiled daughter of a sugar baron at age 12 with her pile of blonde curls and unparalleled sense of whimsy. She's the leader of all the children in the Golden Mile the affluent strip of the 19th century Montreal where powerful families live, until one day in 1873, when Sadie Arnett, dark-haired, sly and brilliant moves to the neighborhood. They are immediately inseparable. Soon, their childlike games take on the thrill of danger and then become deadly. So let's start with an easy question, I think. What inspired when we lost our heads?
1: Oh,, um, you know, so many things kind of come together for a novel. Like you were saying, it's hard to give a synopsis because a, a novel is always such a, um, a huge like trunk and trove of different ideas. Um, I think the original inspiration was, um, when I first came up with the idea, I had been looking through this history book of um, it was paintings from Montreal at the time. And I had come across a illustration of one of these big costume balls that they used to have in Montreal at the turn of the century and were such, um, you know, grand events where all the rich people met and courted and whatnot. And there was, and it was an ice ball and there was a young girl and she was dressed up as Robespierre from the, um, the figure from the French revolution. And I thought that was so charming. And then, then I had this idea of what if I had this young Victorian girl who kind of embodied Robespierre and all that revolutionary spirit. And then, so I was toying with that idea. And then I just kind of created a group of girls based on uh, characters from the French Revolution, Victorian girls, and and just was doing character sketches and how. So I had this bunch of, young women and they were just kind of exciting and bubbling with energy and psychopathic and i and um it was so fun for me to have those kind of irreverent ideas and these ambitious lunatics but in the bodies of victorian women who are who are supposed to be so reserved and everything they did was monitored and um they had so little agency so i sort of started with those characters and they and um so i kind of built I was like, let's build a little revolution for them to kind of grow into. So that was the original impetus for it.
0: So you were reading the book for fun or you were researching with the intention of writing a book?
1: I honestly can't remember. I think I was, I think I was just, um, hmm, was I researching for the idea of a book? I might've been, I think I might've just been, Perusing for ideas, and I was interested maybe in doing something around the Victorian time, you know, the Industrial Revolution per- period, because I thought it would be so interesting to kind of put lend my kind of perspective of gender and women onto that that area. So I was looking for um, how I could do it in a Montreal setting because I didn't really know that much about it at the time because our perception of that era is so kind of dominated by British Victorian um, books like Dickens. So um, yeah, there was kind of something of a story and then I found that and then it was like, oh, cause I had always also loved the French revolution but I'd never found a sort of thought of a way that I could kind of tackle it in somehow that would be authentic to my own voice and you know the concerns and themes that I usually kind of work with.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can see also the the Dickensian inspiration, because it's not your first time going historical fiction, but in Montreal. So, yeah. Yeah. So why, why do you think you always come back to Montreal? Do you think it's one of those write what you know things?
1: Um, totally in part. And I think um, because I was raised in Montreal, and um, I think there's just this Kind of element of storytelling in Montreal that goes with the history of the city, and so many different people and voices kind of contribute to it. And because it's a port city, we've always had um, you know lots of immigration from you know ships full of Irish people, ships from Russia with people speaking Yiddish. So you have these like in the French Canadian uh, magical realist, and then you have this Yiddish sort of humorous storytelling, and the Um, Irish penchant for uh, metaphor. So I think, I think just naturally there's something in Montreal where we tell a lot of stories. So I was raised kind of um, listening to these. Everybody had like a grandparent who was some sort of mafia pen or some (laughs) like, you know, everybody exaggerates about their family in Montreal. So um, it was kind of, it was always uh, a really inspiring place to build a story and tell fables because it is kind of, Um, a place where fables are told.
0: And in this one, you've got these two contrasting parts of the fable. So you've Mm -hmm. got the golden mile and the squalid mile. Um, Where did you divide them so that we kind of imagine them in our own city? Because it it seems like they're pretty close by. You know, it's just go down Sherbrooke and there you go. (laughs) Well, they kind of are close by. That's like
1: one of the strange things about Montreal too is our sense of, or maybe it's just me because I spent so much time on the plateau, but the sense of geography is like, if you go um, five blocks, it's just a whole other world. Um, So actually the Golden Mile was based on the Golden Square Mile, which is up, um, you know, like above Peel when you go on... um, you know, Pine or Red Path Avenue. And then you just see those illustrious mansions that were all built um, around that time because the factory started being built in Montreal and they're, and the um, factory owners just started accumulating this incredible amount of wealth. So, and at that, that period, everything was based on the house. And, and every, if you were sort of upper class, you needed this house to display. So that's why when you go up there, they're
0: just, you know,
1: um, you can't even really imagine living in them. Uh, So that was- Did you have
0: one house that you, or did you agglomerate in your mind when you created- I was kind
1: of, I was actually like, yeah, it's funny because when I went there, um, before doing the research of the book, then I was going up and looking at the different houses and I was like, which one would Marie live in and which one would Sadie live in? And I think Marie, I kind of constructed one and it was a bit based on uh, this this incredibly magnificent house that had been destroyed in the sixties. And, um, it had been bulldozed. There was actually like, when I was researching it, there was a movement to keep it. But, um, then the heritage at that point was like, well, it was, you know, it's an Anglo building, so it doesn't really belong to a uh, heritage. So they just bulldozed it. So that was a little bit, um, where Marie's house came from. And Sadie was like, I, um, Steady was this other little house. I don't know what it's called, but then I was like, "That's a perfect house." They all have safety. names, right? But the houses. Like not, what's that?
0: They all have names. I, the houses. That you can
1: yeah, do. like the my favorite one, uh, I think, is the Lady Mer- Meredith House, which I guess is owned by McGill now, and they're just so fabulous. So um, that was kind of fun to to recreate, and I wanted to explore women's lives at that time, but also um, even in that lifestyle, I didn't want to denigrate how much Victorian upper-class women were creating just in their living rooms because um, they did so much sewing and craft. And sometimes when you look at their stuff, like even that women created and it's all anonymous because they were made by women. They're just extraordinary works of art. I mean, they were forced to sit in their parlors and create this stuff. And some of them were just so extraordinarily talented but nobody wanted to call it art. Um, So it was just wonderful things to kind of explore about that area. And then um, I needed the poor area, which was, you know, almost straight down. If you go all the way down to um, like the river and the canal where all the factories were built and sort of, you know, you have the remnants of the factories that are still there. But the entire neighborhood, because it was constructed so quickly and so poorly, like, um, you know, the houses were they were cold. They were filled with rats. They were moldy. Um, they just collapsed. You know, ten or twenty years after they were they were built. So that was actually a harder area to reconstruct. And I really had to do a lot of research just to even find details of what the houses would look like, what it would be like for the women to go to work, what where would they eat, the kind of brothels, how would they go to the bathroom, and just and then there were so many details that we were just so. Um, wonderfully exciting to me, but all, everything was filthy, you know, and then you would have like an outhouse and just for the entire block was using it. And those streets were just filled like filth. And when you got home, you'd shake your dress out. Cause there was like you know, corpses of rats and hair and just all sorts of stuff. So that didn't have really a name, but I decided I, I really wanted a name to contrast, like the Golden Mile. So I called it the Squalid Mile, which just seemed so like apropos. And then the people in the Squalid Mile, they're very, um, they love the Squalid Mile, or some of them do. I mean, they hate it, but love it, as most people do from a sort of um,
0: From whatever neighborhood
1: you're from, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of, they create their own sort of, um, like there's a lot more when you go down to the Squalid Mile, although, you know, there's the prostitution and then there's the um, poverty. You also had so much going on on the streets that I recently like so many plays and puppet shows and performers and and, um, so it just had this uh, very exciting, hidden kind of aspect to it that I enjoyed kind of recreating.
0: Yeah. That's a theme that um, I think comes up in a few of your novels that like the the theater, the performance, the, the clowns, there's a lot of clowns. (laughs) Is that a, like an an interest a passion? The circus? I do. Like, I just,
1: um, I think even as a child, like I loved, um, uh, I loved any kind of, theater I could find and um, you know obviously like I came from a sort of uh, lower class household, of I was never taken to the theater but I would find it places like I remember St. Louis Square um, back when I was a child there were all sorts of street performers and anything theatrical I just adored and then um, at school I remember when uh, Geordie Theater or the Black Theater Workshop would show up with a little play with their bags I would just like lose my mind there was something um, about the theater and just being able to become a completely fictional character and grow up ahead of a donkey—that just enraptured me. So I think in all of my um, the worlds that I build, there's always this sort of
0: theatrical entertainment happening. Yeah, um, I can see that thread for sure. Um, so. We've sort of explored the setting. Um, let's do a little deep dive into characters. I'm trying to think okay. of who we want to start with. It's hard. I guess we should start with Marie, Marie Antoine. can't mm-hmm. not start with Marie. So what was it like writing her? I mean, you sort of knew her fate from the beginning. So. Um, no
1: spoilers, but um... uh, yeah. <laughs> so Marie, yeah, Marie was, uh... I I actually really, um, I really loved building that character because she's a lot of fun and um, although tragic. And she was inspired by Marie Antoinette. I mean, they have the same name. Marie Antoinette's real name was Marie Antoine. And So she was kind of, she is just the belle of the entire golden mile because she's able, she just is the richest child and she's beautiful. And she's able to perform as a little Victorian girl in such a perfect way that it's almost tongue in cheek. And you wonder to what extent is she aware of um, the performative nature of what she's doing? And um, yeah, she's this little theatrical bubble and, you know, she's going to grow up to become Uh, in the novel horrible person and just everybody hates her but um, to create her as a child and and it just for me I was I've always been interested in the figure of Marie Antoinette because she's so reviled but forget she was sent to she was sent to France when she was 14 years old and she was just you know kind of traded away this very young girl and the amount of hatred that she that people put on her body and her sexuality um as the revolution was going on and um, was something that I wanted in the book because in the book too every every time when people attack Marie they attack her um her body and her sexuality and accuse her of these these crimes. And I was kind of interested in the way when people attack women, they go after their sort of personal um, and sexual life. And then even in the real Mary Antoinette, when she was um, executed, she was charged with high treason, but also in incest with one of her children, which of course was um, not true whatsoever, but they just needed this um, to accuse her of something sexually so that the crowd would um, be able to just wash her get her head off get her head chopped off with like this thrill of watching um a loose woman be destroyed yeah so that's marie. Um, yes. I feel
0: like when we, we're talking we're talking about like two characters there's like little marie and then yeah marie and did it did it feel like a, a natural progression or did they feel like two different characters to you when you're writing them
1: um no it felt like a natural progression to me because I knew what she was gonna be up against. And also she had this ambition and um, she is like, because she and Marie are slightly psychopathic and she's so, they're both so ambitious. So I was also looking at her with the the perils of ambition and this type of, of feminism, which is just about sort of becoming a man or taking a man's place and doing the same sort of oppressive behavior that he does, which is what essentially Marie does. She goes on to become this um, factory scion who, you know, owns all these factories, but then employs like the sort of worst traits that all the male owners do. So it was a commentary um, on that sort of uh, girl boss feminism, where you know. And then there's these other characters who are always um, accusing her of like not being what a woman should be because with feminism the goal is to dismantle the patriarchy so that all women can sort of advance in life they're like not just you marie you psychopath so um but you know like things happen to her and so that kind of push her into that way that direction yeah because i feel like if she had had maybe if she hadn't like something um sort of traumatic happens to her and I'm you know and it's a question that we always ask of ourselves anyways as we ask of characters to what degree did that trauma force her hand into becoming a sort of negative um, unlikable person and we always ask that about ourselves too it's like would i have been a better person had this not happened so,
0: yeah as a reader i think momentarily you think that she will um tear down her father's legacy when yeah. she's fallen the the kind of thoughts that she has you're like oh maybe she will change things but i won't spell that either but i think as a good segue from marie instead of going straight to sadie the other mary mary Robespierre maybe we can talk about her as like marie's shadow and
1: oh yes mary Robespierre who that's why i keep
0: calling her marie is because to me they're marie and mary otherwise i can't distinguish them i know they have
1: the same name and they're like oddly so, um, Mary Robespierre is a baker in the squalid mile who bears this, um, uncanny resemblance to Mary Antoine and just becomes her antagonist. And it's almost like a doppelganger who is constantly, um, uh, critiquing her and threatening her. And you just feel the presence of Mary Robespierre in, in the book, always underneath in the squalid mile, working to undo, um. Marie and Sadie up in the kind of, up at the golden mile. So she's a very uh, sinister, in sinister, but also she just does these incredible things to get ahead because, and what she has to do to get ahead is so extraordinary because she doesn't want to be poor. And she's tired of being um, sort of misused by her, you know, her parents or grandparents, refuses to marry because she just realizes everybody has in store for her, this, you know, like to, for her to be just a factory worker um, in this squad mile. And she rejects that because she has these highfalutin ideas of herself. And um, it actually, because Robespierre, the character that she was inspired by, um, he was an orphan who had this beautiful gift of the gab, which, um, you know, people remarked on and then they would take him to speak to the kings and queens and aristocrats. And they're like, isn't this adorable, this poor little orphan who speaks so eloquently and writes speeches. And um, then he subsequently used that to go and just create complete unrest in, in France and have everybody, um, all those aristocrats heads chopped off. So it was um, it was sort of, that's what inspired me with Marie, with Mary Robespierre. She is, um, she just has this, Um, a resting way of speaking and when she stands on a podium everybody listens so she becomes this terrifying person for them because she rallies these these armies of young girls to kind of push them up the hill to go um, up to the golden mile and her army and you know and I really loved creating that army because I was like what would sort of a revolutionary body of young like you know 14 year old girl foot soldiers look like at that time and how do I make them terrifying um, to the men in the city to Marie to all the establishment if they kind of came together
0: yeah we already have a question about George I was going to get to George but I'll go ahead <laughs> and put it Um, It says, hi, Heather. I really enjoy your work. I was wondering what the impetus for the character of George was. I found them to be such an interesting character, especially the introduction of a non-binary, gender-neutral individual in Victorian times. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss your thoughts about their character development? Thank you. Should we So in the book, I think we referred to George as she. Do you Mm -hmm. think George would identify as they? Yeah, that's it. It's a very interesting question. And I
1: went back and forth with my editor um, because, um, so George is this androgynous genderqueer character from, up uh, because that's what she would be in the time. So um, if she existed now, it's, she would definitely have access to this vocabulary and um these sort of sensibilities. So we were trying to, I was trying to keep her, consider her thoughts about gender and identity true to the Victorian time. But yeah, she definitely, um, she's definitely like, uh, one might call her non-binary now. I don't wanna, um, it's hard to pinpoint because it's from a different time. But what I was so interested in too was just the idea, like we have this idea that, this is some new sort of ideology or gender awareness. But throughout history, there we have always had these um, trans individuals and non-binary and people who have, you know, just not been born in the gender, like biological gender, they uh they feel belongs to them. I don't know how to put it in words, but you know what I mean. So um it was fun for me to have one in the victorian times because there were um there were a lot of these gender queer women who sort of sort of changing their names and you know wearing traditionally masculine clothing and so it was really like a thrill for me to include that in my idea of um you know the experience of being born in a woman's body
0: with her with her hat I
1: I just find like her so um she's so beautiful too to me and yeah I was gonna
0: say I found it you know she's said to be ugly numerous times but every time I imagined her she was just stunningly gorgeous exactly uh, I wanted um, to like
1: yeah I was totally working um to kind of uh to dismantle that too because even um yeah I found her beautiful as it went along. I just, and she's so, she's so, um, she's kind of like the moral compass of the novel. And. Um,
0: Did she come into being after the rest of the cast? What's that? Did she come into being after the rest of the cast in your mind? Because, you know, at the beginning you said that you were, you're imagining these these little girls, was she among them or would she come sort of later? She actually came,
1: um, she came was one of the first ones and she was one of the ones who was just sort of um totally fully formed and she was just started dressing like that and you know and and in the 80s I had spent a lot of time in Provincetown because uh, my mother was genderqueer and she lived down there and she would dress in traditionally men's clothing and she um and she, had, she changed her name to Abraham and did all these, you know, and she kind of lived that life. So for me, it was fun to kind of have a character who embodied that. So she came so, uh, yeah, it was just George. Like immediately, as soon as I created her, she uh, she dressed herself and she was like, don't put me in uh, women's woman's clothing. I hate that. I've got my own attire. I've got a top hat and this, and I dress in these like really cool uh, Victorian uh suits. And, and yeah, and it was interesting to me too because it's so much as intuitive when you write and even though like a lot of in the book I I kind of question like what femininity is and we think of it as being this very benign passive uh thing whereas in the book it's very it can be very violent and murderous and um scrupulous. So for me it was interesting too that George who doesn't kind of have these um really like traditionally feminine attributes is also the the kindest character and the most gentle yeah
0: like the, the least violent I would say. Yeah. The only one who's like really guys can we just chill down. Yeah. <laughs> Take down like the just just tax? fighting for the rights of women. You yeah know? Exactly. purely. Um I think before I ask the next question, Gina, if I, I actually I want to talk about Sadie because we haven't talked about Sadie and I feel weird because She's like just standing there waiting for someone to acknowledge her in this conversation, I feel, as Sadie does. So what was it like writing Sadie? She's such Sadie a-
1: yeah, so Sadie was actually based slightly on the Marquis de Sade, who um, was a famous, uh, infamous, I shall say, uh, pornographer from the time, and was really a brutal, horrifying aristocrat. Um, as far as, you know, aristocrats who deserve to have their heads cut off during the French Revolution, he would have been an ideal candidate, but he escaped it by, you know, they had uses for him because he was such a beautiful writer. Um, Anyhow, he wrote these pornographic texts that really, um, they have had a huge influence on contemporary thought and avant-garde artists, particularly his idea that um, an artist, what it is to be free and what it is to be completely intellectually free. And kind of counterintuitively, a lot of feminists have really liked the thoughts of the Machi de Sad because in his books, women who are virtuous are killed and tormented, and women who are wicked and um. Uh, are more sexually open and have no interest in being married or um, having children. Cause he looks at, at the act of childbirth as like horrific. So um, those women he rewards. So then, as I said, counterintuitively feminists like Simone de Beauvoir and Angela Carter just adored his writing because they were like, finally, someone who sees uh, the body of a woman, not as a mother or by her roles in society, just as someone who was kind of equally wants to be free. So it was this complex idea. So I really wanted to have um, this young girl who was a psychopath, like this Makudasad was, and um, also had this, but this plume that was just gorgeous and interested in the idea of the philosophy of the bedroom, which is what uh, the Makudasad called it. So she's also interested in like what it is that women do in the bedroom and what are our desires and speaking about that openly and um anyways so the hard thing about creating her was um because i'm working with these elements of very dark person but how to make her lovable but that's kind of it was kind of fun that i got to kind of build them as children because with children you look at them and and uh, you always uh see the best in them so She does psychopathic things as a child, but she's still sort of sweet in a way because she's little. And, but you see it, you see it coming. Like she always, um, when she writes poems, like her mother is always burning her because her mother can't stand how she just doesn't, she's not a little Victorian girl. And she's always into these macabre things and dead animals and uh, just saying contrarian things. And then one day she finally writes some poetry and her mother is delighted. And so Sadie reads it out loud and it's very uh, morbid poem about um, crows and their attraction to death. So um, it was hard to build, but once I got Sadie, then I was totally um, thrilled. You always end up uh, loving the characters that you have to work with harder, I find. So um, yeah, Sadie was a trip. And now she
0: I mean, I found Sadie as much as, I, I had lots of moments where I really liked Sadie in fact, sometimes more than Marie. Um, yeah, I know. I'm. I kind of always. I always. Kind of like I, I, I really had a lot of compassion for her. A lot of times, like when when her mom when she has to leave on the ship. I think you know you feel for her. And yeah, 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 yeah. That moment she gets sent away, and then she's
1: so little, and then um, and she's so vulnerable
0: momentarily, and.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite moments when she steps off the ship into England. She's all alone. She's 12 years old and nobody in the world wants her. And she just looks around London and she's like, well, this is fabulous. So she just (laughs) has that little survivor, you know? And um, she just does it. She has to, she becomes a certain way because if we're going to find some rationale before, like, because she does do insane things, but yeah, nobody lets, nobody, she's so talented. She's so intelligent, but because she doesn't fit into the mold of what a little girl is supposed to be like at that time, she's just spurned by everybody, but she has this self-belief because she knows somehow there's something special about her. And that's when she meets Marie. Uh, Marie also sees it and they just become so infatuated with each other's talent and the idea that they are, um, they're just so, they're, each of them are
0: so intelligent that they finally
1: met, um, their match when they meet each other.
0: Yeah, that was going to segue into my next question, but I'll take one from the audience just because in between. So, because it kind of, so Gina is asking about prostitution as a big role in the book, and actually prostitution comes up sort of thematically in a few novels. Um, so she's asking about, you know, why you choose that subject as a, a metaphor, a symbol, a topic.
1: Um, it depends. Yeah, it is kind of. Um, sex work does become a recurrent uh, theme in my books, and each one is. Is I'm trying to think like through the narratives of my book, but I'll just stick to this one. I think. Yeah, because uh, they
0: are different in each book. I wouldn't. Th- I don't.
1: Yeah, find- so, yeah I was. Um, because they were so. So we'll just look at this, um, this book. So sex work at the time was one of the few viable professions for a woman who did not want to get married and um, could kind of live outside of society, um, that that sort of patriarchy and have some agency for herself. And I think that's why in a lot of um, novels about the period, you do have the figure of, um, a sex worker because none of the other women would be, have that kind the freedom to kind of execute, enter into one of these extravagant plots. And, um, I had also done a lot of research at in the time. And what I had found really interesting was that sex workers in the, that Victorian period were actually in much better health. Than the mothers and factory workers, and they had so many recourses to, um, you know, like George plays the midwife. They had more uh, access to birth control, to doctors, to um, being able to to clean themselves, to food. So it was interesting to me just that they were kind of uh, healthier than if you than uh, an ordinary lower class woman. So I was kind of interested in that and
0: um so and And then sort of counter to yeah it's counter to what people would assume right
1: it totally is but also in and you know um it's funny because when um Gina hi Gina um when you were asking about how it kind of extends in different novels I kind of explored that too with the I um with Sadie's attraction to it. Like I'm almost questioning, like with a lot with Sadie because Sadie was the writer character and it was the first time I'd created a character who was also a writer. So I was also interested in what, I was asking myself that question too, like why do I always return to the brothel? And then Sadie goes there to write and uses it as this kind of philosophical, examination of how women relate to men and what kind of power and agency they could possibly have in the in a sexual context. So, but the other characters do uh, sort of question that. They're like, do, does Sadie kind of have the right to come and uh, and use that material? So that was actually a questioning of myself too. Like, why am I here again? But I think that's just the history of it to me has been, um, just so fascinating because it has been a part of feminism and women striving in some respects. Obviously there's, uh, you know, all sorts, obviously abuses then as they are now, but with those bigger brothels that were run by women, there was some sort of attempt to create these spaces where women could have some more power over, over and make money that they got to keep for themselves and not have children or, um, a husband who be, who essentially, at the time, legally became your proprietor and boss.
0: Oh, hold on, we have another question. Is that also Gina? I think so. Nope. Oh, another one. Uh, oh, well, we'll explore the book, book club question later. I want to get into, oh, but now we've started talking about the brothel. So Madame is the sort of benefactor character. And we also have Jeanne Pauline, I think her name is, the, uh, the, yes. the, the apothecary owner. Mm-hmm. So we've got these yeah. older ladies who, they play these really key, but like background roles. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did they come to be into the story? Cause you started off with the, with the little girls and-
1: Yeah, Jean Pauline, um... Jean-Pauline Marais, by the way, like you, if you read the book, like I made it very, um, you don't have to know anything about the French revolution or even pick up on any of these things. So just little Easter eggs. But um, so Jean-Pauline Marais, yeah, she was really important to me because she's a lot older than all the other women. And I love the um, the perspective she has. So she just runs this pharmacy and it's sort of clear she's murdered. She poisoned her husband and that's why she's able to run it. Um, for herself because her husband was abusive and um, it was kind of like arsenic at the time and po- that was really how women poison their husbands and I think like in the arsenic act in, Le- in uh, England at the time they tried to make it illegal for women to have any access to arsenic so <laughs> they couldn't actually poison their husbands because it was odorless tasteless it was hard for um, uh for any autopsy to pick it up. So it sort of became this um, tool that women were you know, sharing with each other to murder their husbands. So that was kind of, uh, you know, that was it. But what more importantly Jean Pauline is for is that um, sharing of wisdom. And I love that when, you know, women, older women kind of have these um, such interesting perspectives on what, uh, how we should, how one should act and some, you know, through life. Cause I didn't really have uh, a mother. My mother left me when I was seven. So I just didn't have this access to um, uh, a mother telling me what the rules of engagement for the world were. So whenever I met an older woman who was just willing off the cuff to give me some life advice, it was just so amazing. And I find um, today in feminism, there's so many, schisms between young feminists and old feminists and it's like, like why the old feminists they just have this crazy ass perspective on stuff so it's kind of I, I mean i like i wanted to really bring that into um the book how you know women pass on knowledge sort of yeah she a, was like
0: weaving things in a way yeah she sort of knew what was going to come and what could happen exactly yeah and
1: she's just like i know where this goes guys and and also she was very good at um pointing out people's talents because when she meets uh mary robespierre she's like well um this girl is is totally nuts and she doesn't like her (laughs) whatsoever but she's like she has this incredible ability to um to as a public speaker and draw attention to herself so um yeah so she's good at she's so she was fun for me to to create and and she was based on uh Jean-Paul Marais who was this discontent this character who, one of these people who um have no use in the world like he had no friends and he was awful and couldn't hold a job but then the revolution came along and, and he was this you know was able to be this blood thirsty revolutionary and Whenever this war revolution, sometimes people's character, like you're like, oh, that's the point of you in life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really um, made that figure much more uh, likable. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, actually, my next question is sort of the flip side. So, twelve-year-old girls, twelve-year-old girls are thematically uh, very present here. Mm-hmm. I think the book opens with uh, a the, the, with murder and twelve-year-old girls. So, what do you think? Do you think there's something about that age that is like particularly, and, and the, the scary revolutionaries? It's always the twelve-year-old girls and the black masks. What is it with the twelve-year-old girls? What is it?
1: Um, I think, <laughs> I think, um, I was thinking about this the other day because it's funny. As a writer, you're sort of you just kind of write intuitively, and then you start noticing your themes. And it's like, what is it that like? Why is there a little scratch in the record of my mind that returns to that? um but i think what i'm fascinated by that age and young girls is it's so in that age sort of from 12 to like 16 or you know those adolescent years i find they're so there's such a mystery to everybody in the way whenever whenever you look back on those years you act in so many strange ways, in such a way that you're so um, shaped by the male gaze. You're so controlled by it. You're so insecure. Most um, sexual relationships are empty consent. You just end up um, engaging in these sexual acts that you have no desire for and just feel like, afterwards. afterwards. So it's like, how? why does this happen? And why are girls so, like all the sort of, um, we have so many societal things on young girls to act in a certain way and to be passive and just to define ourselves by how other people see us. And so I'm just interested in dismantling that and finding where does it is that happens so that we can somehow recreate girlhood so that we come out of it stronger as opposed less, to less you know, traumatized. Yeah. It just seems like that period of time is just created by society to destroy you and make you so, um, unhappy and miserable and insecure. So that once you're through it, um, you're just so kind of beaten down that you just do what everybody tells you to. And then you're, they push you out in the world and you're ready to do whatever your husband tells you to, or whatever your family tells you to. So I'm very interested in that, the site, that time period as being a time when, very crucial, and if you can liberate yourself and be somehow self aware to escape what society is trying to mold you into,
0: and I guess in the book, that sort of is what happens. That's when the big schism happens, the girls are separated mm-hmm. and brought back together eventually, like on the other side of those years. So maybe, like, we could talk about that relationship because that's the central crux of the whole novel, right? Is it's yeah, safe. it's just this like magnetic pull and also magnetic push. So what what inspired sort of that intensity of connection? Like, um,
1: like so many things, like you said, it is the heart of the novel and part of it, um, when I created those two characters, they just fell in love um, despite me. They were just like, I thought they were, <laughs> I thought I created them to be antagonists because they had sort of been in real life. But then I found that every time I put them on a, in a scene together, they were so drawn to each other. They forgot about the rest of the world. They just wanted to be together all the time. And I was like, okay, fine. You guys can like, um, become best friends. And I was so I was in, like part of my original, uh, uh, sort of guides for creating this book was I really wanted to center women, particularly because it was the Victorian times and all our, you know, women's lives were supposed to be focused around men. So I wanted to sort of take men out of the narrative and see how they would figure out the world, um, just by themselves so that the, the most essential relationships they all have are with other women. So it was almost, and the women become like colleagues and they help each other figure things out. So, I was interested in that, the female friendship as sort of the central uh, romance of both their lives, and how. And I, I find in society we always look at those relationships with other girls as trivial when actually, um, and we're not taught to build on them. I think with young men, like, you know, it's all like make your little old boys club and then you'll meet later in life and do these fantastic things. But as girls, we're not really taught. To um do those things. So Well, because
0: yeah. for them it's like friendship and then also love and also erotica and also hate and like they it's all oh, of it. yeah. it's all oh, of yeah. the feelings. Yeah. Cause
1: it was, um, I wanted to do friendship, but also like that sub that, that dark subtext to friendship that we don't talk about. And it's always, um, this is women, you're supposed stuck with your friends. You're like, I'm supportive. I love her. I love her. But it's like, not really for a deep, uh, friendship, like these passionate, obsessive friendships that are love affairs that last for years. There's always, um, and they say like this little drop of hatred in it because you're competitive. You're so, um, you don't want them to leave you behind you don't want it's like
0: you, you don't want them obs- to have other friends exactly and with any
1: obsession you sort of begin to resent um its control over you so the two of them are very they have um they're almost I mean at one point they almost murder each other because they're so they don't they're unable I mean semi to- by accident what's
0: that Somewhat semi way. by accident
1: yeah, exactly. But they're doing their games to the extent that they're eventually like there's some, you know, it's like, I mean, it's it's a it's the opening scene. I start with that. There's yeah, so I think we can spoil that. Uh, I'm to spoil that, but it's like to me, there was always the question, like to what degree was that an accident? And were were the was the gun loaded?
0: Did you because, Yeah, I think it says that that Marie takes the bullets out. So then you're like, whoa, where'd the bullets come from? But yeah,
1: of course they're there. <laughs> so who knows? Sometimes we just do things. Uh, it was one of those actions too that are perhaps like we subliminally do things. Like once I was with a friend of mine who was, you know, my very best friend and we were sitting, I guess we were like 15 and I, and she tried to push me off the roof which you always nice but I think it was just this impulse to push me off the roof one day but it didn't really affect our friendship although I would bring it up and I was like you tried to murder me and I think it's really like um did you remember that no she's like no I didn't do that that was an accident I didn't really
0: mean to shove you I was like you just like shoved me anyways I mean it's like girls that pierced each other's ears or belly buttons in high school but usually. Yeah. it you know like a clothes pin and nothing is safe about that but
1: yeah way. people like girls are really gross like so <laughs> like, you know what i mean like at that age too you're so interested in like bodily body anatomy and and um
0: well it's all kind of new at that age yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. so it's like that whole thing with boys that are like um was it like uh snakes and snails and puppy dogs tails and like i'm like ugh. I know so many girls who like just do weird like stuff like <laughs> snails and you go over to the house and it's like what have you got it's like I have trapped
0: <laughs> <laughs> but in their case um they do get like di- th- those moments like in the garden and then later on you do get to allow them to like indulge in this obsession with each other at times did you feel like it was hard to keep them apart as you were writing them it's like when they're children or yeah so- I found it.
1: That- when when they separate it was I mean that kind of tension the pull like they know through the book that they should not really be together because they somehow um they somehow like enable each other's worst impulses and bring bring the worst out in each other so they're always trying to sort of stay apart but um the pull was always there the pull the pull so I think that's kind of um it was fun to write that, and it, and it like just added um, this wonderful tension. I thought through the book
0: without giving away the ending. Do you think that the characters sort of got what they deserved, or do you think that they lived through their history because it was based on, you know, a number of other characters who, um, did they get what they deserve? Like I, I was, I was happy George got a. Don't, don't spoil anything.
1: Um, I. I think, yeah, they did. I think so. You think they, uh, they, they, they ended where they needed to
0: end, I think.
1: That that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of like a book club question. But um, I think, I mean, I, was, I sort of, that's- But you knew the ending, part. I guess, from the beginning. I, did, did I know the ending? I wasn't entirely sure. Like a lot, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not- it's not totally like uh the french revolution there are people who um characters who live who died in the french revolution and some who die live in the French. so it's um i don't like keep it directly towards to history so that um there are surprises and whatnot so um yeah i kind of created they seem they each seem to be barreling towards their fate by the end
0: okay so those are all the questions I had. I had a really good time. Um, I'm going to allow the audience, if you guys have questions, put them in the chat. I know there's a question specifically for me from one of our book clubs. Uh, this interview will be available on our YouTube channel. Um, that's the Code St. Luke Library YouTube channel and also on the Code St. Luke podcast. Um, but while we wait for people to think up of Q and A's, do you wanna give us a hint of what you're working on now? Are you working on a new novel with your
1: bits you're allowed to share? Um, I, I mean, I am, it's kind of like a, um, oh wait, I see a question though. Oh, we have a question. Who would you like to see cast? Okay, first your question was like, um. I am working on a novel now. Yeah, it's hard to kind of explain because it's still in the sort of muggy, like. um,
0: What resource material are you reading? You're gonna give us an era. It's (laughs) like, this one's actually set um, in like
1: 1935 fish and goes into, so it's actually like more, it's like towards the early forties, but. um, That's a big hint. Yeah. But anyways, I was excited by that question. Who could who would we cast? I don't know. Does anyone out
0: there have um ideas? If anybody yeah, I wish them. I was better at these things. Um, um trying to think of an actress that has amazing really hair, but also an amazing bosom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like she, I, I don't I don't want like a a it's the skinny Marie
1: Antoine would be very odd no she's so plump okay so nobody nobody knows they've asked me an unanswerable question It's hard uh, to Sadie say, right Sadie who would be a good actress for Sadie like Christina Ricci Christina
0: Ricci she's like, like young in 30s now young Christina Ricci oh uh, yeah we can't like cast her down but that's the kind of the look the I don't
1: know yeah or maybe um I could, it's it's hard for me to cast it because um I have I see them so perfectly in my head. And I had actually used a lot of um I had found uh photographs from I wish I had some like they're probably in the other room. By the time I found them, it would be after it's finished. But I had looked for um, because I do like to do little mood boards and I had um I had like collected a bunch of different, oh, Amanda safe. I don't know how to say it. If we have a music
0: secret, if we have a musical rendition, I would, I'd love her. She's got that sort of eyes. Yeah, I can see that.
1: So anyways, I had had images from the times too. And like, I had found this one uh, girl from the Edwardian era who had this giant hat and messy black hair. And I was like, oh my God, that's so like Sadie.
0: Well, they're like Rococo paintings, aren't they? And they're big dresses and- Yeah. That's one of Elliot Page as George.
1: That would be very interesting. Totally. Hmm? Oh. Oh my God, here are some. Who's this? Sydney Sweeney, yes, from Euphoria as Marie would be amazing. Yeah, I can see she that. Would, be it would be so good. And she has to
0: play both Marie's. She has to just not, they, they can't be in the same scene together at the same time. It's kind of like what they did with The Parent Trap and Lindsay Lohan, where they can only appear, you know, as each other in different clothes, but with one actress. They have CGI for that now. You could have <laughs>
1: <laughs> This is fun. Yeah, Sydney Sweeney, that's a good one. And um it actually be fun, like what's, what's fun too about the um, turning these historical books into um, television shows now is they're doing blind casting, which I find really interesting because, um, uh, so there is like, we could expand it to, um, you know, thinking outside the box, like someone like Zoe Kravitz could be like a really good um, Sadie Arnett.
0: Yeah, I can, oh, I can see that. That's true. Um, and it's not, we can Im- imbibe it with, with more sort of racial commentary too, if you want to put some more, weave more into it. So, you know, yeah. but in the case, yeah, that, that's a fun, fun thing to imagine. Do you have a song that you associate with each character? A song? hard um. with Victorian characters, I suppose. Is there a song that goes with no, the book?
1: But um, I was listening a bit to um, Eric Satie, who most people know, because he did the, um, they used him in Emily Poulain soundtrack, uh, if you're not familiar, but. Um, yeah, no,
0: I know, I know.
1: So I was listening to a bit of that because um, he, he was composing around the same time and was doing some maybe I'm wrong, but I think he's just around the same time and he was doing a lot of experimentations with piano and it kind of, um, was interesting to me because I wanted Marie. She also has a very, um, modern avant-garde, um, taste in art. So I thought she would really like Eric Satie at the time because for a lot of people, his work was so impressionistic and weird and they were like, this is terrible music. And he had trouble being taken seriously, but, um, Yeah. I thought she would like that. And it's the same thing. Like when she goes and looks for art, I was actually looking for really, um, unusual art from the time and artists who were kind of a bit on the underground. And I had found, um, some interesting people. So, so that I imagine
0: for the goblin market. Yeah. Love that. We are almost at eight o'clock. So, um, I'm gonna take, oh, there's another last question. We got the last question. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. I really enjoyed hearing a little bit about your process and thoughts about your characters and plot lines. I very much look forward to your next novel. Not a question, but a great way to end. Oh, thank Um, you. So I want to, again, thank the publisher and Rebecca Silver. And of course, Heather, thank you so much for chatting with me. was really, really fabulous. And um, hopefully we will have you back uh, with your next novel. Oh, anytime. Uh, all you. your books are historical fiction. Uh, no, they're not, right? You've got some nonfiction.
1: I don't know. It's hard to say because I, I wrote um, Lullabies for Little Criminal and The Girl or Saturday Night, were both set in the 90s, which I never thought of as about historical fiction, although I suppose kind of moving into historical, historical fiction. fiction now. Yeah.
0: My, my childhood is now part of history, some other era. Perfect. Thank you so much. And let me see if I'm forgetting to thank anybody else. Oh, I will mention our next author talk is on April the 12th with historical fiction author Genevieve Graham. Thank you so much, Heather, and have a wonderful evening, everybody.
1: Bye, everyone.